It's a blessing to be with you this morning. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that we are especially encouraged by your presence, and we hope that you have been encouraged this morning as we've given our hearts to God in worship. And if you have any questions about what we've done or or what we believe and what we've been practicing this morning, we'd love to uh, answer those questions by the Word of God. We want to do everything in accordance with the will of our King Jesus, and we'd love for you to to ask those questions if you do have an interest in them. You might turn in your New Testaments back to James chapter 2. We studied there this morning in a lesson that focused on the entirety of the context. What we're going to do is consider a topic that is introduced in verse 13 in a moment of James chapter 2. I think that we all, every single one of us here uh, this morning can... Recall a time when we wronged someone. We, we may have known it, we may not have known it, um, but when it came to our attention that we wronged them, we shamefully awaited and fearfully anticipated whatever consequences would come from that, whether they would hold it against us and maybe retaliate with their own evil, or, or maybe we worried about losing our friendship or relationship with that person, or Maybe even you did something wrong, whether it be in school or at your work or legally, well, illegally, if it was wrong, and broke the law and you anticipated what the consequences would be. But maybe you received a a relief in that they showed you mercy and they forgave you. And there was a willingness on the part of the offended party to to extend in their opportunity and wielding the power they had, having been wronged and an individual who is wrong before them, instead of seeking vengeance, sought mercy and gave forgiveness. What a sigh of relief that you had. Um, how good did you feel after that? How, how thankful were you to that person or that entity after you had been forgiven? Well, I would suggest that the majority here this morning, whether you thought about it or know about it, off the top of your head when I introduced that, has indeed had that happen to them. We've wronged God. And everyone who has come to the cross in faith and submitted to the word of the gospel in baptism has received that kind of mercy when it was certainly due us to be punished for eternity. God said in Hebrews 8 and verse 12, as as the Hebrew writer is quoting from Jeremiah, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And such a situation, whether it is something that you thought of where you wronged someone and they showed you mercy, or just the very fact that we have been forgiven of our sins as children of God, it's a demonstration that mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what James introduces in verse 13 of James 2. He says, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But then he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And mercy triumphs over judgment is a general topic that you see from Genesis to Revelation. And what he's telling the brethren there is that obviously you know you need mercy because God's judgment is coming. And without mercy, you will fall in judgment. You do not have hope if it's only based on God's justice and His judgment. You need mercy. And He's warning them, if you don't show mercy like we studied about, if you you see that poor man and instead of having compassion on him and showing him love through service to help him in his needs, 
then God's not going to show mercy to you and help you in your needs. In the greatest degree, we are destitute spiritually. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and we desperately need God's mercy because if it's up to just the judgment, we are going to be lost. And so we need to reflect on that as Christians. We need to realize the triumphant nature of God's mercy and take comfort and encouragement in it, but also not forget about what it actually means in Scripture. Certainly mercy triumphs over judgment, but just how does that look? I want to give some attention to that this morning. Let me suggest to you that when we consider the revelation of God's self to us and His will, what He wants for us to do, there is presented in our eyes a divine dilemma. Now, this is something that He planned in eternity. So I'm not saying that God had a struggle in this. In His infinite wisdom, He knew exactly what would work as He created man that He foresaw rebelling against Him. But in our mind, as we reflect on what we know and we consider what we might do, man's wisdom, of course, pales in comparison to God's wisdom. Isaiah 55 says that His thoughts are higher than our thoughts and His ways than our ways, as the heavens are higher than the earth. And so part of the gospel revelation and the entirety of the the divine story from Genesis to Revelation that we refer to as the scarlet thread of redemption, what we see is God's revealing of His intricate and flawless plan to man to show them that, yes, there's a problem here, but God solved the problem. But I think as a greater appreciation that we might have for His grace and His mercy and the hope of heaven that we have as His children, we need to reflect on just what that dilemma is. And the Old Testament and Scriptures in general is very clear about God's just nature. And as we just study the justice of God and the fact that He's holy and the fact that as a just God, sin must be repaid, we shudder and our knees shake. And it's designed to do that. It's designed to strike fear in man. And that's really what Ecclesiastes 12.13 is followed by. Yes, we need to fear God and keep His commandments. That's, that's our whole purpose. And He gives the reason for God will bring every work into judgment including every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's telling them that your purpose is to fear God. And here's a great reason why. Because this is just a testing ground. You exist in the bodily form on this earth to determine whether you are going to pursue eternity with God or you're just going to live it up in this short period of time. It's a test. And God's going to judge whether you're going to be in heaven for eternity or separated in hell from Him for eternity based on what you decide to do in the flesh. And that's meant to strike fear in us. He gives us the positive nature of His mercy and His grace, as we'll talk about. But we don't even see the value in God's mercy if we can't first understand the real serious nature of His justice. We need to comprehend both. And he tells the readers here that your whole purpose in life, your whole focus should not be wealth or money or land or any kind of prosperity or even human wisdom, but fearing God because he's going to judge you based on what you do in the flesh. And his judgment is always just. He is is just and must repay sin, but he does not 
make any mistakes in his judgment. Remember David after he had sinned with Bathsheba and he had murdered Uriah, her husband, to cover it up. Psalm 51 reflects his penitence and his actions of repentance and the fruit that he bears in repentance. And it's telling because in verse 4 he says, "...against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge." He is reflecting on the inerrant nature of God's judgment. He is realizing that he's the only one to blame. This is true humility, is a recognition of God's justice in his judgment. That when God convicts me of sin, then it must be so. When God shows me that I'm wrong, it is not within my power or responsibility to question that judgment because I know by faith that he never gets it wrong. And it's interesting that this is quoted in Romans, the third chapter, because you remember the epistle to the Romans has a lot to do with God's rejection of the Jews because they have rejected the Christ and the fact that justification is by faith in Christ. And so a lot of it has to do with Paul foreseeing some arguments that his countrymen might have. And one of his arguments is demonstrated in Romans chapter three. And he says this in verse three, what if some did not believe What what if someone didn't believe in the Christ is what he's saying. Believe in the gospel. Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? In other words, God is the God of the Jews and he's promised loyalty to us. He He has made a covenant with us and he has shown his faithfulness and always owning up to his end of the bargain. He has always been faithful. And so if I didn't believe and he rejects me because of that, is his faithfulness without effect? In other words, is it God's fault? And so this is what he says, certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar as it is written. And he quotes Psalm 51 in verse four, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. He's saying, Jews, you need to do what David did. When David had Nathan by inspiration say, you are the man, you're in sin. You did this. You're guilty. David said, I've sinned against God. He is exactly right in pointing that out. Any judgment he brings upon me is completely sound and completely just. And it is my obligation out of humility and penitence to acknowledge that. The Jews were so arrogant that they were going to blame God. You are unjust in your decision here. His judgment, though, is always just. That makes me shudder. I know what I'm deserving of. And that's why we can rejoice so much and have so much positive thinking in the mercy He's provided us. His judgment is just and His judgment is certain. No one's going to escape judgment. No one's going to escape what is due them, provided that they have avoided God's mercy. Notice in Habakkuk 1 and verse 13, when Habakkuk is struggling with the idea of God using the unjust and sinful nation of the Chaldeans or Babylon to punish the sinful in Judah, he he questions God about that and he eventually comes to realize, I need to just live by faith as God tells him and, and not question him anymore. But this is his reasoning, and it comes from a basis of truth. Now, he was wrong in, in, in questioning whether God was right in using the Chaldeans, and he had to grapple with that and come to a greater realization. But the basis of his reasoning was right. He says in verse 13 of Habakkuk 1, "...you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, 
and cannot look on wickedness. That's why he says, why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? He's saying, how could you, based on this, use the Chaldeans? But notice the basis of his thought. He's of pure eyes than to behold evil. He cannot look at wickedness. In other words, all the wickedness that exists today is only for a moment going unchecked. There is going to be a time of reckoning. His judgment is certain. God is not going to get to the end of time and decide, you know what, all of this wickedness, I'm just going to let it slide. You all can come into eternity with me. He cannot do that. His judgment is certain. In Psalm 11, when David is struggling with his uh, uh, adversity, when, when people are after him and they say, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He remembers that the Lord's judgment is certain and that it's just and that he is going to, to bring them to a reckoning of their deeds. It says the Lord is in his holy temple and the Lord's throne is in heaven. His eye, eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul, hates, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, his countenance beholds the upright. He's saying, I don't care what's going on here. People may have decided to not uphold the law of the Lord. People may not care about righteousness and justice, but God is still the same God, and He's still in the same place, and He's seeing everything and they're going to get what is their due because His judgment is certain. No one will escape that condemnation. And so it makes us shudder because we're all before Him, at least at one point, as unrighteous and condemned. In Romans 3 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul, speaking of the fact that the Jews are as guilty as the Gentiles, said, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written in his point, in your own law, it's written of you, there is none righteous, no, not one. He go on to say in verse 23, as we know well, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. The fact that God is just presents a divine dilemma, though, as we are all unjust before him, because he doesn't want any to perish. And, and, and we understand that and appreciate that about God. But if we truly understand it and comprehend it, then we're going to have a greater appreciation for His intricate plan that He has put in motion. God cannot tolerate evil. He can't wink at sin any longer. He's not one to let sin go unpunished, but He doesn't want to punish sinners. That's the point. That's the dilemma. He loves us and does not want to punish us. And He has no pleasure when He's forced to do so. In Ezekiel 18, in verse 23, the prophet writes, Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? In verse 32 of Ezekiel chapter 18, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord. Therefore, turn and live. He takes no pleasure in it at all. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 4, it says that God wants all men to be saved. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, it states it in the negative. He is not willing that any perish. And so there's the divine dilemma. God is just, all have sinned, but He doesn't want them to be punished. He does not want to send anyone to hell. He does not want to sever a relationship with anyone, but His justice demands that sin is dealt with in that way. 
But if God truly does desire the salvation of all, He truly does desire that men would escape the condemnation that is justly due them, His wisdom is expressed in the solution that He provides. God is abundant in mercy. That's the solution. We had Psalm 86 read earlier, and I appreciate the reading of that psalm. Notice in verse 5, again, it says, You, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. You know, someone may say, so-and-so has wronged me, but I'm ready to forgive them. If they're willing to own up to what they've done, if they're willing to make amends, if they're willing to make the first move, I'm ready to forgive them. And sometimes when someone says that, and that person that has wronged them makes that move, they realize that they're not actually ready to forgive. Their mercy is lacking. That doesn't happen with God. He stands ready to forgive. Isaiah 59 talks about how our sins have separated us from Him, but His hand is not shortened that it cannot save. He is standing ready to forgive, willing to forgive, and there is not a thing anyone has done or ever will do that is bigger than His mercy. That's the point. This is why Saul or turned Paul said, I'm chief of sinners. That's what I consider myself as. But he says, I stand as a pattern of salvation for all who will believe. In 1 Timothy 1. In other words, if I, the persecutor of the church, can be saved, Jeremiah can be saved. Ronnie can be saved. All of us can be saved. If Paul can be saved by God's mercy, then we can. But it has nothing to do with any goodness in in Paul that merited his salvation, but the abundance of God's mercy and his willingness to forgive Martin Gingrich defined mercy as to be greatly concerned about someone in need. Vine adds to feel sympathy with the misery of another, and especially sympathy manifests in act. So he goes on to describe mercy. It is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it, and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. God is ready to forgive. We need forgiveness but He has the needs adequate, the resources adequate to meet the need. He is abundant in mercy. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the comfort that God provides and that how since they are comforted and they're suffering for Christ, they can comfort us and then we can comfort each other. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he calls Him the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He's the God of all comfort because He is the Father of mercies. Mercy begins and ends with Him. He is the fountainhead from whence all blessings of mercy flows. He's the source. He's the author. In Ephesians 2, we're impressed by the fact that after he spoke about what they once were and how they walked according to the course of this world and they had a disposition of disobedience as rebellious people and they were by nature children of wrath, he gives us those two powerful words, but God. That's great significance. It's it's drawing a contrast to us. This is who we were. And knowing who God is, that's a really bad place to be in. But also God says, who is rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us even when we were dead in trespasses made us alive together with Christ. God is rich in mercy. We need to stress that He's rich in righteousness. He's rich in holiness. He's rich in judgment. 
He's just in everything He does. But that's married together with His mercy and His grace and His love for us. His not willing that any should perish. His willingness for all to be saved. Psalm 103 and verse 17. The Holy Spirit reveals the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We'll revisit that in a moment. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It's hard for us to comprehend eternity, and I think that's why the Scripture uses that kind of language. Everlasting is already hard to comprehend. So in order for us to appreciate God's mercy even more, He says His mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. It is great in depth and breadth. It is more than enough for us. And that's why in James 3 or 2 and verse 13, it says that mercy triumphs over judgment. Strong defines the word translated triumphs as to exult against. Sartan Gingrich gives this definition. It means to boast against, to have a cause for boasting because of advantage and power. And so essentially what James is saying is that mercy is more powerful than judgment. And isn't that the case? What is more powerful than the fact that God is so perfect and so pure and so holy that He cannot even behold evil with His eyes, but He must punish it, and I have sinned and fall short of His glory. What's more powerful than the retribution and condemnation and consequence that comes from a sinful man before a holy God? What's more powerful is that holy God's mercy. The resources He has to provide that mercy. The unequivocal forgiveness of our sins based on His goodness. His mercy is more powerful than His judgment. You just think of the worst scene that picture paints of judgment. In 2 Thessalonians 1, it talks about He'll come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. That terrible scene of fire and judgment. His mercy is greater than that. And that's going to be demonstrated in the fact that He'll come in that day to be glorified in His saints. It won't be a bad day for them. It'll be a day of rejoicing for those who have realized His mercy is more powerful than His judgment. And for those who didn't seem to care, they're going to live with eternal regret because of it. Going back to Psalm 51, where David is speaking about his sin and, and petitioning God for that kind of forgiveness that he so desperately needs... He starts in verse 1 by saying, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sins. He knows who God is. And he knows that God's justice will lead to his complete and total loss of his soul. But he also knows God's loving kindness and he knows his mercy. And he has a boldness because of God's love for him to approach him with this petition. You know, it's right to appeal to God's better nature, his, his, his mercy, his better nature, as we would call it. All of his nature is good. But appeal to his mercy or his loving kindness, he wants us to appeal to that. God, I know I've sinned. 
I know I'm deserving of your wrath and your eternal punishment, but you're also a God of mercy. He wants us to petition Him in that way. It's not manipulative. It's it's a humble recognition of what we need and what He provides. He wants us to realize what we deserve, but He also wants us to realize that He doesn't want that for us and that we owe it to Him when He saves us. His mercy is more powerful than His judgment. In Romans 5 and verse 20, this is the way Paul put it. The law entered that the offense might abound. Don't we see that? Don't we see the sinfulness of sin in the law? And the great lost nature of men without Christ? The offense abounds, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. When Jesus comes on the scene, all the darkness of sin is overwhelmed by the glory of the cross. That's the point of the gospel. It's to show you your great need by seeing the justice and holiness of God and the power of His judgment and to encourage you to come to the cross by the overwhelming power of God's mercy and His grace. That's the point. Mercy always triumphs over judgment. But we need to realize as we reflect on this just what that looks like because mercy doesn't negate judgment. This is one of the intricate and impressive parts of God's wisdom is that He never contradicts Himself. He never throws part of Himself under the bus or or sweeps it under the rug. He always stays true to who He is. And He is a God of justice and judgment, but He's also a God of mercy. And these two things, as contrary and opposite as they may seem, they work together. His mercy does not negate His judgment. The fact that He's willing to forgive the sinner doesn't mean that He doesn't care about or overlooks the sin. Remember in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4, it says that He wants all men to be saved, but He says, and come to the knowledge of the truth. There's, there's still the need to be right and to do right and to walk right. In 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants you to stop doing what has put you in the position to be subject to His divine wrath. And so it's not that He's overlooking sin. It's not that He's forgetting about it. It's not that He's indifferent to it all of a sudden. But He hates it still. It's still deserving of punishment. But His mercy allows Him, His grace allows Him to deal with the sin while still forgiving us. And that's important. Sin is still sin. And it's still deserving of His wrath. It's still as terrible as it was on day one. God's mercy does not negate it. In Proverbs 16 and verse 6, I think we stand to gain a greater appreciation of mercy in this verse. Wisdom tells us in Proverbs 16 and verse 6, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided for iniquity. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Do you see that? In mercy and truth, Atonement is provided for iniquity. Mercy is God's attitude toward those who are in need of atonement for sin, and truth is the place where that atonement is provided. And that should impress us. He still deals with the sin. Sin still has its ugly, horrid consequences. The difference is, as we appeal to God's intricate and flawless plan, we escape that punishment. His mercy and His truth 
provide for the atonement. Remember Psalm 103 and verse 17, as we said we'd get back to. He says, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. Then he says, on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do to them. He's saying that God's mercy is in an endless supply. It's overflowing and it will never run out, but you've got to know where to access it. And it says that when you keep his commandments, when you observe his truth, when you walk in his ways, you're still deserving of death, but that's where God's mercy is. And so you're forgiven of those things. Galatians 6 and in verse 16, this is what Apostle Paul says about it. As many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. There's a rule or a standard how we're to walk. And in that, the people that walk according to this rule, more about that in a moment, are the people who are given mercy and who obtain peace by that mercy. And so mercy does not negate judgment, but along those lines, we've got to understand that mercy is specific, and so it's conditional. God doesn't just say that I don't want anyone to perish. I want everyone to be saved. I'm I'm a God of mercy. I'm overflowing in mercy. So that necessarily means everyone is going to be saved. No one's going to be lost. That's this broad universalism that if people were honest with themselves, a lot of the doctrines they espouse and they believe would lead to universalism. If all have sinned and are worthy of death, but God does not want any to perish and he's sovereign. And if he doesn't want something to happen, it won't happen because he's in control. He's sovereign. Then the ultimate end of that logic is universalism. Everyone is saved and no one is lost. There's very few who actually believe that, though. But that's the logical end. We take error to its logical end. That's never what the Bible talks about in regard to his mercy. His mercy is always specific. It's abundant. But it's specific. You want something and you ask someone where you might find that. And they tell you the certain store that has this item in stock. You don't go to the stores where it's out of stock. You go to that store. That's the concept. There's more than enough, but it's in this location. It's specific. That's reflected in Romans, the ninth chapter. In Romans chapter 9, again, he's, he's talking about the Jews being rejected because they've rejected Christ. And, and they're saying, God, that's unfair. That's unjust. That's unfaithful on your part. And so he's answering some of these arguments before they could even raise it because Paul's a Jew and he knows how the Jews think. So this is what he says in Romans 9 and verse 15. After he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God since he's accepted some of these Gentiles and he's rejecting us, his very people? He says, certainly not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then he says in verse 18, therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And he's not saying that he has arbitrarily chosen specific individuals to be lost or to be saved. And and in eternity, he said, I want to have mercy on James, but I don't want to have mercy on Jeremiah. And that's my prerogative. That's not what he's saying at all. Because we've already demonstrated through Scripture that He doesn't want any to be lost. He wants all to be saved. And the very context of Romans, the discussion is of a group of people that will be saved based on the gospel of Christ and all those who will be lost because they've rejected the gospel. Many are called. In fact, everyone is called. And the Scripture says few are chosen, but it's not based on an individual thing. It's based on God who determines who He's going to have mercy 
on. God says, I'm going to be merciful to whoever I want to be merciful to, and I'm going to harden whomever I want to harden, and His decision is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone who by faith comes to the gospel and obeys it, that's who I'm going to be merciful to. But if you don't like that, that's who I'm hardening. And really, as Pharaoh is an example there, they're hardening in themselves as well. So notice what he goes on to demonstrate there in Romans 9 and verse 22. He says, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that He make, make, might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory? Notice this, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. We already understand that it's not some random decision of God. He's not showing respect of persons because it's Jew and Gentile. It's a mixed bag. There are vessels of, of mercy that are Jewish and Gentile, and there are vessels of wrath who are Jewish and Gentile. And so he goes on to demonstrate that with Scripture. I will call them my people who are not my people. That's the Gentiles. Her beloved who is not my beloved, it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. There's the Gentiles. The Gentiles who will be subject to His mercy. Vessels of mercy. But then Isaiah says, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant will be saved. For He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And He also says, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. And so the promise to Abraham is, is as the sand on the seashore, so shall your descendants be. And Isaiah says, but only a handful are going to be saved. And so there are people who are vessels of mercy who are Jews and vessels of mercy who are Gentiles. People that are vessels of wrath who are Jews and of wrath that are Gentiles. And here's the point in verse 30. What shall we say then that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness? even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. He'd go on to say in, verse, in chapter 11, it is not that all of His people are cast out. He says, For I am also an Israelite. The Apostle Paul accepted the gift by faith. It was not a stone of stumbling to him anymore, but it was a sure foundation in which and on which he would not be put to shame. That's the difference. He realized the specific and therefore limited and conditional nature of God's mercy, that it is overflowing, but it's only offered in Jesus. And he accepted that. And everyone who rejected it rejected God's abundant mercy. Remember back in Galatians chapter 6, he talked about those who walk according to a rule, mercy and peace are upon them. Notice the context in verse 12. He says, speaking of the Judaizing teachers, as many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Notice this. God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. You notice the location of that? 
in Christ Jesus, a new creation is what avails. It's in Christ that we have that new creation that we're taken out of our corrupt nature of sin into the renewed and recreated nature of the children of God. He says it's in Christ. Circumcision doesn't do anything for you in Christ. You can do it. You can refrain from doing it. You certainly can't bind it, but it avails nothing. It's that new creation, this renewing of of water and the Spirit, as, as Titus 3 talks about, by His mercy He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. A new creation, but you notice it's in Christ. In Isaiah 55 and in verse 3, Isaiah speaks of the sure mercies of David. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, the sure mercies of David. That mercy is connected in Acts 13 by the Apostle Paul with the resurrection of Jesus. He explains in verse 22 of Acts 13, When he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king. He was talking about Saul. To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And notice verse 23. This is the sure mercies of David. From this man's seed, David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now he goes on in Acts chapter 13 and verse 32 to say, We declare to you glad tidings. That's that mercies of David. Through him, people would be blessed by the Savior. That promise which was made to the fathers. He says, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. In other words, He's saying it was through David that this seed would come, be the Savior of the world. But when he died, there the doubt arose. And the mercies were made sure in his resurrection. Isaiah 55 and verse 3 is talking about how sure the mercies of God are in the promise that by David's seed the earth would be blessed, the Messiah would reign, and that not even death could keep that from happening. It's in Christ that we have that mercy. And so we saw that in Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 15 and 16. He speaks about this new creation as being the rule through which mercy and peace is multiplied to those people. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have come new. And so that's the place where we're living a new life, separate from the sin we were once in. We're in Christ and walking in Christ. Galatians 3 and verse 26 says, You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You're in Christ and you've put Him on. That's where the mercy is, created anew. Romans 8 and verse 1 explains it this way. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but he qualifies that by saying, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, we were begotten again to that living hope. It's in Christ where that mercy is found. It is abundant, but it's not found outside of Christ. And that's a continual thing too, brethren. I need mercy every day. In fact, in, in the beginning of the epistles as we've been studying, there is the wish for grace and peace to be multiplied to the readers. And we've demonstrated that that's going to happen by them adhering to and applying the principles 
given in this specific epistle written. In, in 2 Peter 1, it's add to your faith virtue and virtue knowledge, self-control, perseverance, so on and so forth. And you're growing in grace in doing that. Well, in 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, he adds mercy. Grace, peace, and mercy be to you. I need to increase in the mercy of God. How do I increase in God's compassion and His forgiveness and His mercy and into a greater appreciation in that? It's walking according to that rule. It's staying within the confines and context of God's specific mercy that is offered, which tells me that if I decide to live a different type of life, I'm forsaking that mercy. In Jonah 2, in verse 8, this is what he came to a realization of. He's called to go to Nineveh. Of course, he runs away. He's swallowed by a great fish and spat out. And in that great fish, he comes to a realization that it's, it's foolish to fight against God. And I ought to do what he says. So he says this, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy to turn away from the life that God's directing is to turn away from his mercy. This is why James said what he said in James two and verse 13. He said, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. You recognize as a Christian, you need mercy. But when that poor man came in and you treated him like dirt and you showed a preference to the rich man, you at that point were forsaking your own mercy because you were showing no mercy. In the model prayer, Jesus encouraged them and taught them to ask for forgiveness of their debts as they forgive their debtors. If we're not willing to show mercy, we're forsaking our own mercy with God. We forsake our own mercy with God by not being faithful to Him. Remember, mercy is found in Christ. And this is what John says about that in 1 John 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. Whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. And by this we know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him, that's where mercy is, ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. We need to understand that I appreciate and we should appreciate that mercy is far more powerful than God's judgment. That's what's going to win out in the end. If someone receives God's mercy that he's freely willing to give, there's not a thing that they have ever done which will separate them from their God because it's been sent away by his mercy. It's been forgiven. His mercy is more powerful than his judgment. Those who forsake that mercy by living in their own way, by refusing to meet God's conditions that He has placed so clearly in His gospel on forgiveness and grace and mercy, they will not have a triumph in judgment. They will not stand, as the psalmist says in Psalm 1, in judgment. But they will fall and have eternal regret. We extend an invitation to you this afternoon with this truth. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I want to tell you there's not a thing that you've done in your life that is too big for God's mercy. But you've got to be willing to accept it. It's specific and you've got to meet it where it's offered. And that's in Christ. He says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. That condemnation is looming on your horizon if you have not put on Christ in baptism. But thank God that he's offered something more powerful than his judgment. The only thing that's keeping you from it is whether you desire it or not. We offer you that invitation.
if you have not put on Christ in baptism. If there's any other thing that we can assist you with of a spiritual nature, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing.